Welcome to the Find Your Awesome Podcast. My name is Kelsey Abbott. I'm a confidence coach and instigator of joy. I believe that we are all so much more powerful than we can possibly understand. My goal with these conversations is to introduce you to brave, vulnerable people who are finding and owning their awesome. My guests are leaning into what makes them unique and sharing that uniqueness with the world. I hope these conversations inspire you to break free from whatever is holding you back and to step into your own greatness. Welcome to the Find Your Awesome podcast. My guest today is Michael O'Brien. He is a corporate coach and a cyclist. And in 2011, he had a really bad bike crash. So let's start your story there. Well, yeah. So Kelsey, thanks for having me. It's good to be on your show. Talk about awesomeness. So howdy listeners. So yeah, so I stink as a bike rider. So because the, the horrible crap. So funny story though. I was the last kid on my block growing up to be to get off of training wheels. So everyone like rocked their training wheels or rocked off of them. And I was still like about a year and a half behind them before I learned how to ride my bike without training wheels. So the fact that I got into this horrible crash, it, a lot of foreshadowing perhaps that maybe I should have stayed yeah. on my training wheels. So who knows? Yeah. So. How many of them are still riding their bikes? None of them. None of them. So, you know, I, I had this like nasty crash and I'm still riding my bike. So yeah. So July 11, 2001, what I call my last bad day. I was out at a company meeting. I decided to bring my bike out for a, a company meeting. I wanted to escape the gym. I thought it'd be better. And uh, actually, we were out in New Mexico. So the morning of my crash, we were supposed to be doing hot air ballooning, like because that's the thing to do in New Mexico. And the VP of HR for my company killed it. They were like, he was like, it's too risky. So I was like, all right, golden. I'm going to bring my bike out and I'm going to get some miles in because I was training for a race. And I found this loop around the hotel, about a two-mile loop. And on the fourth lap of the loop, I came around to bend. I was going about eh, 20 miles an hour. And an SUV going about 40 miles an hour crossed the center line of the road and hit me head on. And I remember, like, I, I still remember everything from that day, the sound of me hitting his grill, and then the crash into his windshield, the screech of his brakes, and then the thud I made as I came to the asphalt below. And all you need is a like one course in physics in high school to understand that something going 20 miles an hour crashing into something going 40 miles an hour with that much weight and mass, uh, the result isn't too pretty. Yeah. How, um, all right, we've got a lot to say about this, but I'm actually curious right now, how are you now with SUVs, sound of screeching brakes, like any smells or anything from that day? So no smells. I'm not like a huge fan. Like I had this love-hate relationship with the state of New Mexico. Like I really want to love it because it seems so cool and like Santa Fe and all that, all the places up north. But, um, but besides the trauma hospital, right, because I have a lot of love there because they totally saved my life. I'm like, I'm not really a big fan of the state. So, um, but like SUV wise, no, I'm actually pretty... I'm pretty good. Like that, you know, we'll get to this eventually. But the first ride back, the first ride on the road, which was like 13 months after my accident, with a big push from my physical therapist, the first vehicle that passed me was a white SUV. And I, and I looked back, I got on the road and I could all, 
automatically feel like something behind me coming up at a high rate of speed. And I look behind me and it was a white SUV. And I'm like, universe, you got to be freaking kidding me. I'm like, is this some test? And I just held my breath and closed my eyes. And when that passed me, I was like, phew. And I was like, I can do this. So yeah, no, like no after effect from like SUVs, smells or anything like that. But the state of New Mexico yeah, probably not taking a vacay there anytime soon. Yeah, it may not be the most relaxing place. Yeah, no, not, not at all. <laughs> and certainly not at that resort because that wasn't any fun. Yeah. Okay, so walk us through, you're on the pavement. What happened next? Yeah, so I was knocked unconscious, as you would imagine. But when I regained consciousness, the EMTs were all around me. And I asked the question that only another cyclist or triathlete can really appreciate. I, I asked them like, Hey, how's my bike? And they looked at me. They're like, what? I go, yeah. How's my bike? Is my bike? Okay. And keep in mind, like I could not move. Like even the thought of moving was painful. And I knew like, I knew things were, I, I was messed up. I had back then it was 2001. So road ID wasn't a thing. So they kept on asking me like who I was and my phone number. And I kept on getting it wrong. They tried calling the number and it was, wasn't working. So I thought I was making sense. That's the thing, but I wasn't making much sense at all. But I just remember in the quiet moments, just feeling, feeling incredibly alone. You know, I had all these people around me, EMTs, the fire department came, the police officers, the ambulance, they called the medevac. So I had all this energy and all this stuff around me, but I felt incredibly alone and just scared shitless because I thought like, is this what it feels like to die? And it wasn't a like life before my eyes, fast moving, you know, real of my life. It was more of like, holy cow, that, like it wasn't supposed to happen this way. And I remember just willing myself not to fall asleep. I was like, Michael, stay awake. Don't fall asleep. Because I was really worried, Kelsey, that if I fell asleep, I would never wake up again. And I felt that if I was, as long as I was awake, I had control of the situation, as ridiculous as that sounds right now. But back then, I was like, I can control this. Like, I'm in control, right? Because, you know, people who read my book will know that, like, I was dealing with a little bit of, like, Superman uh, issues. Like, I had to be Superman at work and Superman at home. And I was pouring all my stress inside because I was chasing happiness, and I wasn't being present. And thought, so I thought if I could control things, like if I could put a mask on and, you know, prevent people from seeing the stress inside, then we're going to be okay. And so I kept on saying, don't fall asleep, whatever you do, don't fall asleep. And I wanted to pass out, I kept on like, dozing in and out, but I was fighting it. And they eventually called the helicopter. And they're like, we called the helicopter. It's trips too long to take you by ambulance because they wanted to take me to Albuquerque. That's the only trauma one center in the state. And I had never been on a helicopter before. And back then I was not a great flyer. So I was like, do we really need to go on a helicopter? You know, like, cause I'm like, I didn't want to say it cause I was scared. And again, that sounds ridiculous right now in the moment because I was like bleeding to death. And I was like, yeah, the helicopter start, start freaking me out. So can we just go fast in the ambulance? And they're like, no, helicopter came. And, and when they put me on the backboard to put me into the helicopter, I promised myself that if I lived and I knew that was in question, I would stop chasing happiness. 
You know, like I knew like I had to live my life a little bit differently or a lot, a lot differently if I was going to have the life I wanted to have. Okay. So how did you know that you were chasing happiness? I like, I knew it sort of intellectually, but I didn't know it. I don't think I knew it emotionally. I, I, like the, a common, like in hindsight, like or in that, in that moment. Right. So I would say something that people say all the time now, like, like I'll be happy when, right? That finishing that sentence was, I was really good at that. I'll be happy when I get promoted. I'll be happy when I make the money I deserve to make. I'll be happy when I buy that new car. And I'll be happy. And I used to tell my wife this, like I would come home from work and she's like, it's crazy. You're working all the time. And we were, we were a new family. My oldest daughter was three and a half. My youngest daughter was seven months old. So we had all that pressure. We had our dog. We just, we had a busy, like, young couple in our early 30s type of life and she's like you're always working i go yeah but honey it's it's this is just busy right now like it's going to be better in a bit when the meeting's over so i'll be happy when it's easier and then the meeting would be over or i bought that new car or i did get promoted and in those moments i like i was happy and then like every any vapor finish line it like poofed went away like I had the new car, like I turned in my Ford Taurus that I had as a sales rep and I bought a Mercedes, like a C-level like Mercedes. And it was really cool because it smelled really nice in the car dealership and they called me Mr. O'Brien and it was like so nice. And so my wife thought I was going to go out and buy a Subaru and I came home with a Mercedes and I was like, yeah, this is sweet. And that was, it was really sweet until another dude at work drove up with something nicer and then I had to start paying the maintenance on the car. I'm like, oh, I'm not so happy anymore, right? Should have bought that Subaru. Um, so the happiness like flew away, but it did leave behind like hope. Like the, the hope it left behind was if, it, if I continue to chase or just chase harder, I'm gonna capture it for good. And I just kept on that, doing that. And again, I was pouring the stress inside. I didn't want anyone to see that I was like inside here, I was, I was a stress puppy and I didn't think I could really show it, you know, cause like that's why they pay you to do your job, Michael. And that's the job of a dad, the patriarch, right? You had to be that. At least that's what I thought. So I had a pretty good idea that I was chasing happiness a lot. And I just wasn't, I just wasn't living my life in present mode. I was just, you know, worried about what happened yesterday or worried about what's going to happen tomorrow and not, not living in the moment. So when you made that promise to yourself, did you know what not chasing happiness was going to look like? No clue. I was just saying, I think, you know, like, to be honest, I was like, it sounds like a good thing to say right now because okay. you're, I'm scared shitless. And I'm like, I'm going to, and I, I basically was trying, trying to make a deal to like live. Like it was almost like if I live and I'm not a religious guy. So it wasn't like, if I live God, like I'll be a good, I'll be a good person. It was just like, I like, Holy cow. Like, like my story wasn't supposed to be written this way. And in a lot of ways, obviously it was supposed to be written this way, but I didn't know it at the moment. And so I, I just felt it was like the right thing to say. And, and again, I didn't know the extent of my injuries. I didn't know that until after I spent my time in the ICU and I came out of it, but I could feel like, I could feel like my injuries were, were significant. And, and not because I could see, like I was in a backboard and my, I was just looking up into the air, 
but I could tell by the facial expressions of the EMT and the people around me that um, things weren't looking pretty, they weren't looking good at all. Okay. I, I could, I could see their worry on their face and they're like, oh my, like, oh wow, we, this, this was a doozy way of starting the day. All right. So you survived the helicopter ride. Yeah. 19 minutes. So I remember every single minute of it. <laughs> How did you actually get through that? I, I, so my flight nurse, so I have a poster of the helicopter crew and it's the last thing I see before every bike ride. It's on the door that, that I leave my bike cave. So the last two things I see before I go on any ride is the helmet I was wearing that day. Cause that saved my life mm-hmm. and that helicopter crew and my flight nurse. I, I looked, I stared her down for every one of those 19 minutes. She like, like I had my eyes wide open, willing myself to stay awake, but I was like fo- focused on her. So anyone who's had a baby, you know, any moms out there, you know that they tell you to find a, a focal point. My wife's a, a childbirth doula, so I know a lot about birth as a guy. So she was my focal point. I was just staring her down and she helped me get through it. And, um, you know, we landed on top of the roof at the University of Albuquerque uh, in New Mexico, the University of New Mexico at Albuquerque, and down the elevator shaft, we went into the trauma center, and I felt like I was on a Hollywood uh, set for ER, and uh, met my doctors, and met the anesthesiologists, and don't remember anything for the next four or five days. So today, were you in a coma? No, I was, I was in a sort of a drug-induced stupor. Right. So there were like, I was drugged up and I was, I was, I was taped down. Like I was highly agitated because keep in mind, like I, like I'm a drug free guy. Like, so all of a sudden we got this big bolus of drugs coming in and I was picking at my IVs and all this stuff. So they had to strap me down to my bed and I was more, um, I was a little bit more pissed off than Spicoli on fast times. Like, you know, I was, I was not, um, I was not a happy camper, but there were a lot of funny stories that happened when I was there. Like I, like I interviewed my wife for a job, um, a 45 minute interview to become one of my sales reps and I didn't hire her. Um, <laughs> so she has forgiven me for that. But I told her too to buy Amazon stock back then. So it's 2001. Amazon stock was $15 a share at the time of my accident. And we never bought Amazon stock. Um, well, you didn't was, hire her. So yeah, well yeah, so it's there was a trade a trade off, right? So she you, she was like, you didn't hire me, and I'm like, well, you didn't buy the stock, and so but she was taking copious notes of all the crazy things I was saying, and and the the one thing I said was, you know, uh, follow David. David's our leader. Like he'll show us the way, and and so I came out of the ICU, and she's like, who's David? And I was like, what are you talking about? Like, because I would never talk about work at home. Like I was like, I lived a like a really horrendous day. I'm not going to relive it at home. Well, David was the first guy I ever knew as a coach. Oh. And he was the first guy I knew as a coach that really like sort of spoke like our language of like IPAC. He wasn't an IPAC coach, but he definitely had this this spirituality about leading from the inside. And we had I started working with him like six months prior. And I knew like in that moment, like a seed was planted because I could have been mumbling anybody's name. I was like, Some, something's there, there. And I knew like one day I'd become a coach. It was really a matter of when. Okay. Um, so back up, when did your wife get there? 
my wife got there that that night. So so keep in mind. So she's back home. My youngest, my oldest is going off to preschool, and my youngest is at home and still nursing and the whole thing. So it took three phone calls from my company to my wife because she was upstairs doing stuff in the attic. Actually, the glamorous story is like we're trying to, I think she was trying to kill bugs or ants or something like that. Um, and and they called and they, at first she was like, you know what, just send, fix them up and send, send them home, right? Because I had been like her before and she's like, I'm busy here. Like I got two kids and I'm nursing and like, I just can't get up and just go to Albuquerque. Like, and because the first two calls was really like, Hey, he's been in an accident. We think he broke both of his legs. You should probably come out. It was pretty casual. But the third call was from the head honcho, my boss, and she knew my boss. And she could tell, like, um, I got to get out there. And the real, the real uh, question and answer that really sort of freaked her out, out a little bit, she was like, well, how long should I pack for? And he's like, I don't know, maybe a week or two. And she was like, oh, snap. This is serious. So when she got out there, she got out there like probably like 10 30, 11 o'clock at night. I was still in the OR. And she was, as she was traveling, she was like, well, he's not out of the OR yet. Like maybe some other more seriously damaged people went in before him. I'm certain he's fine. But when she got to the hospital and realized, you know, like I was still there, she was like, I don't care who comes out of that OR next. I want to know what's happening to my husband. Um, my company was really awesome. They set her up with a nanny at the hotel, but they told the nanny, the babysitter, because she brought Grady out, but hey, listen, you're about to care for this woman's child. Her husband's been in a horrible accident. He's probably going to die tonight. Oh. So, so Lynn, my wife, is going through her laundry list of how to care for our youngest because she's very thorough, and I love that about her. And so the nanny is like, why are you going through this list? I got it. Like, go visit your husband, you know? And so there was a lot of this, this ignorance was bliss. And then, then she realized, oh, wow, we have a big situation on our hands. She left the hospital probably like around midnight. And then she woke up at 3 a.m. Albuquerque time and called her best friend in Boston. And I think that's when it all sort of hit, like we're in for a long haul here. And how long were you in the trauma center? So I was there in uh, New Mexico for about 10 days and flew back to Hackensack for more surgeries uh, uh, here in New Jersey. And I spent another like close to a month there. And then I was at the Kessler Institute of Rehab for a little bit over two months. And then a whole bunch of other surgeries and outpatient rehab. So after a while, insurance says, hey, we want to kick you out of the facility. But I still had, by the time I left, like in, in hospital care, I still had about nine surgeries in front of me. Wow. Yeah. And a whole bunch of, a whole bunch of outplacement rehab. And cause, cause when I came out of the ICU, I learned about the extent of my injury. So I broke a whole bunch of everything, both legs, right shoulder, lacerations all over my body. Uh, but the left femur, that's the one that shattered. And when it shattered, it lacerated my femoral artery. So I had, I had lost a ton of blood. That first surgery, I needed 34 units of blood product to save my life. And I needed a fem-pop-popeteal uh, fem artery bypass. Because uh, when you lacerate the femoral artery, just like the carotid artery, it's like, you know, it's, it's the second busiest uh, throughway there in your body. And nerve damage and the whole thing. And what the doctors told me is like, hey, prepare for a life of limitations. 
a life of dependency, you know, you're probably not going to ride again. You're probably going to have trouble even walking again. You'll walk again, but you're not going to necessarily have the same functionality as we once did. So sort of buckle in and set your expectations appropriately. And that turned my world really dark really quickly. And I started to see everything that I lost, everything that I didn't have anymore and everything I couldn't do. And I stayed in that funk for quite some time. All right. So you're in that funk, you're in that dark place. Now, I mean, not everyone knows this, but now you ride your bike. Yeah. You're walking. Uh-huh. So what happened to get you from that dark place to, we don't even have to go all the way to today, but to that first ride? Yeah, the first ride. So, so for me, it was a moment when I realized that and it was almost like a, a dissatisfaction moment because I do believe that in order for change to happen, you have to have a level of dissatisfaction. And I wasn't satisfied with the progress I was making. And I, during one rehab session, I was like, what are you doing? It was almost like a personal, like kicking the ass, you know, like motivational talk, you know, it was trying to be motivational, but was a little bit more scolding. But like, you have to get your mind right. Like, like some people are getting better here and some people aren't. And the people who are getting better, at least they have their mind right. They're looking at the world differently. They have a, they have an aperture that's a little bit more open than what you're looking at. Cause all you're looking at is all the reasons why you're the victim. And I had this beautiful victim story and you know what, Kelsey, so many people validated it. Like I would be like, woe is me. And everyone would be like, yes, poor you. Woe is you. I go, yes, I'm so right to be the victim. And they're like, yes. And, you know, we played in that like level one moment, right? And, and I, I wasn't getting out of it. Then I realized, you know what? I sort of got pissed off. I sort of used the energy of like, you know, anger and frustration to say, you know what? If you're going to be the best you can be and let go of all this comparison mumbo jumbo that you were dealing with, Michael, and just try to be the best you can be, husband, father, leader, person, friend, then you're going to have to develop a different mindset. And so in that moment, I made a commitment that I was going to show up differently every day going forward. And it's sort of where I came up with my whole creating better tomorrows mantra that I was going to work hard today to create a better tomorrow, wake up tomorrow, work hard today, create a better tomorrow. And like drip by drip, pedal stroke by pedal stroke, I was just going to get better. And I was determined. And sometimes I fell off my bike. I had some surgeries that didn't go well. I, the subsequent surgeries, some of them, I had nasty infections and and you know pushed me back to like go on the monopoly board and i didn't collect my 200 dollars. and i had my like pity party but i was like back at it work hard today create a better tomorrow and then eventually i got to the point where i had enough physical function because there was a point in time where i couldn't bend my legs enough to actually ride my bike so i had to have surgeries to open up my legs so i had better function better flexion and my physical therapist one it was like one Thursday. She's like, Hey, you know what? You can't come back here until you get back on the bike this weekend. And I was like, a part of me. I'm like, I am the patient. I have healthcare. I'm like, I can come here anytime I want. She's like, no, you can't. And she, we have a really loving relationship. She was like, you got to get out on the bike. And the thing is, I didn't want to get on the bike. And it's, it's not because of the cars. It was almost like when you're trying to lose weight, you don't want to necessarily get on the scale. Because you want to you want to believe like yeah I've lost weight like I'm good like my clothes fit better, but if you get on the scale it tells you like how far you still need to go. Now it also tells you how far you've come, 
But for me, it was like how far I still needed to go. And so getting back on the bike was like, here's how much further you have to go to get back to normal. And I did not want to see that. I was trying to protect myself from that. And so she pushed my buttons and I drove home from rehab that day. And I was like, you know, grumble, grumble, grumble. And I was like, she can't do this. And I went home to my wife and I said, she can't do this. This is so unfair. And my wife was like, well, when are we going to go? When, when, when are we going to go this weekend to try riding your bike? I'm like, we're going to go on Saturday. You know, like, so I was like, I was, you know, I said, like, yeah, she's wrong, but I'm going to do it just to piss her off. And that's where I had my first bike ride. I didn't know it was like five miles in duration and maybe six. And it was choppy as all get out because. I have a leg length difference now. And so I, you know, I just wasn't comfortable on the bike, but at the same time I felt like so free. It felt like I was a kid again, like riding my bike without my training wheels. And in that first ride that SUV passed me. But then after that, I was like, okay, we're going to be good. We're going to keep on pedaling and we're going to make this happen. And then each ride got a little bit longer. Each ride got a little bit faster until eventually I got back to racing. What was that like your first race? Oh, it was so cool because it just happened to be like it was a, a weekday uh, local criterium series. And it was actually occurs on the on the same um, place where I had that first ride back. It's sort of an industrial park, um, free of traffic, one mile loop. But it happened to be on July 11th that year. So it was a really in July 11th becomes like a second birthday for me. Mm-hmm. Um, along with my, you know, real birthday, which screws everyone up on Facebook because they're like, hey, "Didn't we just say happy birthday to you like a few months ago?" I'm like, "Yeah, and like two birthday thing." But it was so cool. Like I didn't, I wasn't in the mix. Like I didn't like mix it up at the end to win the sprint. So, but just the fact that I pinned the number on and got into life and competition to me that was the biggest victory. So when I towed the line, I was like, "I've already won this race." And I just believe like, you know, every now and again, you got to put a number on, pin a number on and get into it. And there's a risk involved in that. And even the races I do now, there's, there's a risk involved in me racing. Like if I crash again, like it's not, it's, you know, it's, it's sort of a sizable risk, but I, I fully accept it. I want to live my life that way. You know, there's, there's risks sitting on the couch all day long too. And so every time I pin a number on, I'm like, uh, it's a testament to your mindset and resilience and a strong Peloton and what you can accomplish when you have all that going for you. What's scarier for you, pinning the number on or actually racing? Well, with some of the chuckleheads I have to race with in this area, it's actually actually racing. So, um, but sometimes the local rocket rides on Saturday and Sunday are a little bit scarier because it's sort of lawless. But I, I like my approach to like pinning a number on and getting into the competition. Like I, you know, I sort of race on my own terms. You know, I, I, I try to stay competitive and I am, and you know, at my age, you know, I'm, I like to tell the guys like, listen, you guys should be way in front of me because I'm racing on 1.8 legs and you have two. So, um, so when I'm in it and now I have more confidence to mix it up and stuff and try to get in a breakaway and all that. So that is like, that's so thrilling. Like I love, I love the competition and, and really started competing with myself. Um, but sometimes there are situations in the race when, you know, cause I'm not racing at the same, the same level, the high level I was racing when I first started racing. So I'm sometimes I'm racing with some more novice folks 
And we all were a novice at one point in time, but that still doesn't mean that I can't get scared <laughs> when they're a little wobbly with their bike handling skills. Um, so that's the type of stuff that makes me a little bit more nervous, but I compensate for that. I try to ride smart and realize I have to show up for work on Monday. Okay. You said something before. Oh, Peloton. Yes. Okay. So first of all, not everyone who's listening is a cyclist. So can you just define Peloton for us? Yeah. So the, it's a shame that not everyone is. It's like and, a beautiful And I sport. might be wrong. Maybe everyone is. Yeah. So, um, so a Peloton, what's really funny is that everyone knows, well, a lot of people know what Peloton cycles are because they have a oh, great, they, they have a great advertising campaign in a really big budget. So a lot of people will come to me like, I'm about to buy one of your bikes. And I'm like, yeah, a different company. So a Peloton is a group of cyclists in a bike race. So think the Tour de France and all those guys with their shaven legs and their bright, brightly colored Lycra racing around France. That's a Peloton. And a Peloton needs leadership, trust, coordination, communication, collaboration, all that jazz to go down the road as fast and as safe as possible. And you need a lot of trust if you're riding your bike, whether it's 20 miles an hour or 35 miles an hour, you're inches away from each other. You need all that. And the same thing can be said for culture at work, teams at work. You need all that stuff. And so for me, a Peloton is my metaphor for a tribe or a team at work. And I came up with it when I was in the hospital because I was you know, busy doing nothing because that's sort of what you do in a hospital. I really couldn't read. I couldn't focus. And I was done watching TV. And I was like, all these people around me, they're, they're like my medical Peloton. I was like, that's it. I go, that's the name of my company when I have a company, Peloton Coaching. So I wrote it down and let it, let it marinate for a while, a lot of watering and fertilizer. And in 2014, it sort of came to life. Okay, so after your medical team, which is like definite Peloton for you, then who's in your Peloton now? Well, so the, the leader of it is my wife. So for folks who read the book. And what I love when people read the book and they email me, they're like, love your story, but I just have to say your wife kicks ass. And I'm like, yep, she does. So, um, so she's there, my, my family, my girls, my friends, and it really did, you know, as cliche as this might sound like it, it took a village to get, to get us back. Right. It was like a whole thing that happened to our whole family. And so the town or friends or family, my work colleagues at the time, they were all part of my Peloton to get me back up, like to support my wife and my kids when I was in the hospital and just support us when I came back home and I started to work again. Um, but I would say now, like, so they, those help, those folks helped me a ton, but now it's the people, you know, the people I coach, the people I reach out to, the people in my community. I try to make the Peloton as big as possible because I think we needed to be as huge and you know a big tent with diversity and inclusion and different perspectives and you know that's what i want from my peloton is that we don't necessarily all see the world the same way but we have empathy and we listen to each other so we can appreciate that hey you know what as another human being you have every right to see the world as the way you do let's talk about how i see it maybe there's some commonality here so for me i try to really make it as as large as possible, uh, but try to make it as diverse as possible. Cause I think, you know, a diverse Peloton is probably the best one helps us go a little bit faster. How do you find people for your Peloton? 
Well, so through a lot of it is um, sort of just for my business people, like the people who know me, who know me, like using LinkedIn speak, it's like first and secondary connections. And maybe some of the people that follow me online through some of my, my posts and stuff like that. My book, you know, the, the cool thing about my story, and I wrote it really for the message and not about the money, because all the money goes to charity, it goes to World Bicycle Relief. I've been able to meet so many wonderful people I probably wouldn't have never met had it not been for writing the book. So those people are my Peloton. And then just from my volunteer work and, and also just being an athlete still, I, I'm always trying to meet new people. Like I, I don't know if I did a really good job of that when I was younger. I sort of had my head down into my own, my own game. I'd get to an event, I'd be like focused on competing. And now I just try to focus in on seeing, seeing as many people as I can see and trying to, you know, trying to slow down a little bit, you know, and take it all in. I think I'm, I'm much better. And some of it's related to my recovery. And I think some of it's also related to just wisdom that comes with age. And how about that whole chasing happiness thing? Yeah, that's over. Like now, um, one of the things I developed out of my recovery is a huge gratitude practice. And I've been practicing gratitude really since that moment where I was like, Hey, you got, you know, wake up call, Michael, you gotta, you know, shift your mindset. Cause I, I wanted to, I wanted to start appreciating what I still had and could do. And so I started a gratitude practice and I didn't even know it was a gratitude practice. Like a lot of the stuff I was doing in 2001, I didn't really have names for it. Like we didn't know anything about vulnerability until Brene Brown came along right. and we didn't know much about gratitude or meditation. Yes. In some circles, but not like it is now. Like I got hit before there was an iPod. Like there was no, like, like how did we know things before Facebook and LinkedIn told us what to believe? Right. So like now we have Ted. And so we go to Ted and we're like, yes, yes. Start with why or like, like, that no offense, Simon, but that was a question for a long time ago. Right. So, you know, and Gary V is telling us to hustle and grind. I was like, we just called it hard work in the eighties, you know, just like, you know, it's just, we, all that's, and I, I love both of those guys. So I'm not throwing shade on them, but you know, just teasing because they're on a pedestal and it's good to tease every now and again. Um, but like, I, I was doing these things just to try to, help with my mindset and I knew I knew enough about mindset that I I knew it was going to be a catalyst for success and in a large part that was because of the 1980 Olympics like that was like the big thing when the U.S. team beat the Soviet team I was like well that's all about mindset so I had that I had that experience when I was younger but a lot of the other stuff I was making it up as I went along okay wait um so what did you learn from that the, the miracle on ice, I'm guessing is what you're talking about. Yeah, the miracle on ice. Well, I learned, um, I learned a lot about self-narratives, although I didn't call it a self-narrative. It's like, you know, the story that we tell ourselves. So again, I didn't call it, I didn't call it a gremlin or inner critic or any, any of that stuff that, you know, holds us back and all the stuff that we've studied. Like I didn't have labels like that back then. I was I was, it was 1980. I was like 13 years old, but I knew, but just following it, like the belief, the belief that you can have in yourself when you change the story that you're telling yourself and the whole idea that our thoughts drive our feelings, our feelings drive our thoughts and that drives our behavior. 
that type of stuff, did I like internalize them? I guess I internalized them, but I, you know, I wasn't like broadcasting them out as a teenager, but they were there. Those seeds were planted. So I was able to go there, you know, somewhat subconsciously when I was recovering. But a lot of the stuff I was trying to do coming out of my recovery, I didn't really have names for it. Like I, you know, I call it meditation now, but if we went back, you know, one would probably say, well, it's not technically meditation, but certainly I had a morning ritual around mindfulness. Um, that reminds me, when you were in your what was me mindset, were you using gratitude then? No. No, not like not not in those moments, like in those moments when they got really powerful, it was more of a, everything I didn't have, everything I couldn't do. Well, you know, definitely like those moments where I was like, I'm a victim or definitely a worry about being judged type of thing. Like what will people say? Do you really deserve that success, Michael? Like, come on, you know, like really, you don't deserve this position. Everyone's going to know you're an imposter. And throughout my corporate career, I had moments with like that. Like, yeah, the only reason you got this gig is that you're the only guy willing to move to New Jersey. Like there are other brighter people in this company that if they could have done the job where they live, they would have gotten the job. You just got it because of location. So I had moments like that in my schooling and, you know, I never was someone who took school very seriously. And, you know, so I had this self-narrative like, well, you're a good student, but you're not a great student. Like, and sometimes you can be really dumb, like all that stuff in our heads. Like, yeah, I have, you know, I had it, I have it. Right. And it's, and I think the important thing is trying to get awareness around it and acceptance. You know, this, this week I posted my CV of failures on LinkedIn. I read an article a couple of weeks ago. It was about how it's important to talk about your failures as a way to grow. And I created this CV of failures, which was highlighted in the article. So it's not an original, original thing by me. So I followed this Princeton professor and I posted it online on LinkedIn. And it was like, it has like a crazy amount of views and it's, it's just so interesting. And also the commentary is different than any other posts around, you know, sort of sharing our vulnerabilities and sharing our mistakes and, and for me, it was a wonderful exercise because what it, what it proved to me, what it showed to me that even when I had some stumbles, which I knew intellectually, that after each one of those stumbles, there was a period of growth. It was, it was actually a really, it was a really cool process personally to go through, even though I started off thinking, wow, that's a really cool article and a really cool idea and it would make a really good blog post. But for me, the whole process of it was fantastic because I learned a little bit more about myself and my journey and maybe maybe by sharing it help a few more people out there so what kind of what was on there oh let's see down like a few downsizings a few uh, votes of no confidence like you're not the right person for the job we'll give you a windowing position which is a japanese phrase to sort of put you in a job and not really fire you uh, there are a couple like doozy flame out workshops as a coach where I did not have the right mindset because I was, to be quite honest, worried about my parents' health and I didn't prepare for the talk and my mind was totally consumed by their well-being 
And so I didn't prep. I was thinking about them. And Kelsey was an absolute disaster. Like 30 minutes in, I was like, can we stop? Like, I need a break. I was a mess. Um, and I was like, I'm never going to get another client after this. They hate me. They're laughing at me. Driving home. Like, just, you know, all that, like, self-talk when we really screw up. And we screw up in sort of a public way. So I shared some of those. And, you know, the thing is, is that um, the client was so gracious and they were really concerned and like all the negative story stuff, like, you know, it was, you know, it was real, it was human, but it was also a little silly, right? Um, what I've learned though over time is that that moment, like that moment prior to my accident could have ruined my whole month. It just ruined like the rest of like the half day drive when I got home, because by the time I got home, the four hour drive home, I had already like in my head written up a game plan to learn from it, to turn it into more of a level five type of moment. So I wrote a blog piece about it, did a podcast on it, you know, just all that stuff to try to take that stumble and turn it into something much more magical. So I shared a, a whole bunch of those things and just I actually even shared like a funny little story from like fifth grade where I was supposed to lip sync the little river band at the school, like uh, in the school auditorium, we were having like a, like a all class type of thing. We we're studying Australia at the time. And I was supposed to be the lead, lead singer for the little river band. Cause they had the big hit back then. And I remember I was so scared about being up in front of the, the school. I faked a whole illness to my mom and I, I got my mom to call me in sick that day. And they, and so that, this was fifth grade. So, and I share this because sometimes these things in our head are planted when we're really young. But I remember that moment. I remember like in the moment I felt good, like I got out of it. But after it was all said and done, I didn't feel really great about myself. I let down my other bandmates, you know, and it, was a, it wasn't a great way of getting out of something. And it taught me a lot about, you know, persevering and, being in there and just putting yourself out there. And it was a va very valuable lesson at the tender age of 10. But it's, it's one of those memories that, you know, st is still with me. And you know, I think we all have those if we're yeah. just honest with them. Yeah, I have one from third grade, a similar one. We, our school had a declamation contest where you memorized a poem and then recited it well in front of the school. In third grade, it was kind of a class practice year. And so my poem was Trees by Joyce Kilmer, I think. And it was like, I think that I will never see a poem as lovely as a tree. And somewhere in there was the word breast. And the first time I had recited it in front of just my class, everyone had snickered. And I, I hadn't even thought of it until then. Everyone snickered. So then when I had to recite it in front of the whole grade, I pretend I forgot that word. Um. And again, felt that like relief and yet like total shame. Yeah, no, and that's what I, you know, I was at home hanging out watching The Price is Right because we were allowed to watch TV and I was like, gosh, you know, my classmates are up there doing the, doing the show and I, yeah, I didn't know the word shame back then. I didn't know what it meant, but that's what I felt, right? And, and th these, you know, th these memories, you know, they, they are laid down and then we get to choose how we want to label them going forward. You know, the, the whole spirit of like all of our events in our lives are neutral until we label them. 
and at first, you know, I didn't pick such a great label, but then over time, I decided to pick different labels for these things. It's really opportunities to grow and develop and find out more about myself so I can show up differently in the world. Um, and each one, each, every single bullet I put on that CV of failures has made me better as a human being. And I love the fact that I went through each and every one of them. And, you know, and the story I tell myself after each one, you know, it gets less intense in terms of the negative stuff and it doesn't last as long. It still pops up, but I accept that it does pop up and I can see it again, accept it and then decide what I want to do with it. And I think we can get to a better state of being if we got into more of that rhythm of awareness, acceptance and some action that's positive. Yeah, absolutely. I'm with you hundred percent. The, you know, go through the, oh crap, oh geez. And then into the sweet, what I learned from this. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's, um, a lot of people ask me about my accident. And I also ask my wife, they're like, Hey, if you could turn back time, would you want to turn back time? And now her answer is like, yeah, I would love to turn back time and for it never to happen. But for me, I am so thankful that it happened because it gave me a chance to really shift my perspective on a lot of different things. And it really was, you know, as I tell people now, like if you keep on pouring all the crap inside of you and you try to repress it and control it, restrict it, if you will, sooner or later, all that mumbo jumbo inside is going to come out. For me, it just came out through an SUV, but for others, it comes out in disease and sickness or a breakup in a relationship. Eventually it does come out. And unless you figure out a way to deal with what you're pouring inside, or if you're pouring it inside, find a way to release it. Yeah. And for me, my, the journey, you know, past my last bad day really helped me get to the point where I could, I could handle what I was pouring inside and also handle releasing it better. I really like that image of pouring and releasing. Yeah, it's sort of like the like a little bit of like you know people have probably heard like empty vessel, but the cup, you know, like your what you're pouring in your cup, you know, what you're putting in your water bottle, like that analogy, and the ability to let things go, you know, that you know, or at least using the energy of it for good. Like you know, I still some of my clients ask, "Who do you get upset about anything? Do you get pissed off? Like, are you do you get mad at all?" And I'm like, "Yeah, certainly, I get mad, and I." have all those emotions that we all have. I, I'm just going to use the energy of anger or frustration if that comes up in a way that creates some positivity in this world, as opposed to becoming the anger. And I think we see that a lot. We feel that a lot in today's society, you know, especially politically where everyone's all jacked up and really so many people are becoming the anger as opposed to using the energy of it to do something good to go out, you know, go out and participate in the system and make some stuff happen. You know, it's so we're, we're not good as people if we're just anger all the time. I love the way you say that, like using it versus becoming it. Yeah. So and just really being purposeful, like my dog that's barking right now, he's using his frustration to let us know that there's someone at the door. It's a very kind gesture, okay. but not good. Yeah, so, you know, so not, not really good as you're recording a podcast, but still, 
it's a lovable level four type of moment. So, um, yeah. So, but I, I'm a big believer in that. It's like just becoming more aware. And I think that's one of the big things that happened to me. I wasn't really living my life with a lot of awareness prior to my accident, but after it through you know, a lot of work on myself, having more awareness in terms of how I'm showing up, what I'm feeling, knowing that my emotions are going to drive my behavior. And I have some choice in the matter in terms of how I want to interact with folks. Mm-hmm. And before we started recording, actually, you're talking about some recent injuries you've had and how, how has like your experience from your accident shaped how you respond to injuries these days? Well, so the, the, the transparent answer is like, when I feel something in my body, I definitely have a moment where it's like, oh boy, this is, this is the one, right? Because when I was coming out of my recovery, the doctors you know, planted the seed, like lifetime of limitations, more surgeries. You're not going to have these knees for long. They predicted that I wouldn't, you know, left knee replacement in five years, right knee replacement in 10. So it's been 17. So one part of me is like, yeah, I beat the, I beat the math. But then if I have a little, if I have an injury that feels like it's right in the knee, especially my left knee, the leg that was most badly damaged, I'm like, Oh, is this it? You know? So there's definitely a moment where I get a little worried and then I try to take a breath, you know, hit pause and work out my game plan. You know, I, you know, try to listen to my body. I wasn't really great at listening to my body when I was younger. I don't know if we, any of us are, we just go for it. Right. And we push through the injuries cause that's what's tough. That's what tough people do. But now I understand, okay, my leg's not cooperating with me right now. There are other ways I can still be healthy or other ways that I, you know, I can still honor that value. I'm going to listen to my body really closely and I'm going to work out my game plan to get the proper diagnosis. That said, you know, there's a little bit of worry still with me. Like, you know, I want to be chill, but I'm acknowledging that, yeah, I'm, I'm a little concerned, right? In terms of when, when I'm walking and it, it doesn't feel right or I feel like it's catching, it's like, ooh, I wonder what that is. So I'm definitely anxious and eager to get to the MRI on Tuesday and eager to learn more about what the results are so I can get on to the next part of my game plan. So it's not, so it's not all happy, ho, and chill, right? There's, there's, there's a, at least a part of me that has some concern, but the difference is I rather have 90%. I want to take advantage of this opportunity, try to look at what I still have a little bit of that happy, ho type of mentality and 10% worry than the opposite, which I see a lot of people walking around with 90% worry and 10% happy, you know? And the thing is, my body's going to heal as my body will heal. I can do things to put it in a right frame of mind. If we can worry ourselves sick, then I think we can think ourselves well. And I'm going to, you know, and I work on that through my meditation and trying to put good thinking into my, my system in hopes that that may help, right? Help the cellular structure and the communication of my body. Because we do know, like, if we worry and put a lot of crap in our mind, then we can, yeah, we can worry ourselves sick. So if that's true, and we believe that's true, and most people do, because we, we say it often, then why can't we think ourselves well? 
And that's what I'm trying to work on. Is it hard? Yeah, it's like super duper hard. But that's my choice right now. And I'm going to live that until I get to the MRI machine. And with some luck, get a good diagnosis that would mean no surgery. And I can just work on it through PT and go back to my therapist. And she'll probably tell me to get back on the bike. So, so yeah. Comes back to getting back on. Yeah, the bike. I'll, it all comes back to being on the bike because, for me, my bike is about my freedom and exploring, and and now it's about every time I ride, it's a testament to the people around me and a proper mindset that we can overcome our challenges. Now, some challenges out there are really hard to overcome. I don't want to paint the world with like rainbows and skittles and unicorns. There are some things that are really tough to overcome. But a lot of the stuff, a lot of the stuff that we, that end up being self-inflicted wounds for us, we can't overcome that with just a shift in our perspective and a good, good, strong Peloton or tribe or culture or team behind us. And every time I get on the bike, it's a reminder of that. Love it. All right, I've got, well, I think it's one last question. All right, cool. My favorite, favorite questions to ask people is what is the scariest thing you've ever done? Scariest thing I've ever done. I um great question. I think it might have been my very first like, this is gonna sound like a really weird answer, but this is the one that really resonated. That gave me the most back sweats. It was my very first corporate proposal as a coach. And I wrote the proposal. And I had a whole career of selling someone else's product or service. Like I worked for a company, it was the company's products and services. So I was just the messenger. I wasn't the product. So there was a little bit of like removal, right? Personal removal from that. And as the boss, I wasn't selling. I was just leading those people. And then when I became a coach and I had some private pay customers, which I gave them my friends and family rates, right? as a lot of us coaches do. Yeah. Then I had my chance to do my first corporate proposal. And I sat in front of this very computer that I'm talking to you on now for 45 minutes at like 10 o'clock at night with the proposal all ready to go. And I kept on looking at the price I was quoting and I was having a hard time getting comfortable with that. And I was like, am I really worth that much? Am I like, what's that? Like, is it too much? Is it too little? Is it just right? And I'm like, what should I do? I don't know what I should do. Like if I send this and it's too much and they say, no, am I going to make it as a coach? Keep in mind, like I left corporate America and I was like, I left everything behind. Like it was like the benefits and all that jazz. And this was our new thing. Like the seed was planted. I have to, I have to follow this journey forward. Like this was it. I put all my eggs in this basket and I was like, oh, I don't know. 45 minutes, just, and I literally had back sweats. I was like, I don't know about this. And then eventually I was like, well, screw this, just hit send. And I hit send and went out, out into the internet. The next morning I checked my email at 6.30 in the morning. Keep in mind, I sent the email at quarter to 11 at night. And so I, nothing came back. I was like, oh, that's so right. They don't want to hire me. I suck. I charged too much. I quoted too much. And then three hours later, so close to 10 o'clock, I get an email back. They're like, great. Sounds awesome. Let's start. And then I was like, oh man, 
I didn't charge enough. So for me, like as an entrepreneur, that was one of my scariest moments, just hitting send on that first proposal because the price, I wove the price into my value and all that mumbo jumbo in our own headspace. And since it was just a new frontier for me, that was like one of the scariest moments, but I made it through. They hired me and they've been a, a client ever since. I love, and at least in my personal experience, a lot of my scary moments end in fuck it. Just yeah. It's end or just post it or whatever it is. Yeah. I was, I was just like, just do it. And then I did, I had that moment like, Oh man, I could have charged so much more. I'm like you moron, you, you know, like just like that type of stuff, you know, luckily I didn't stay there that long. We had to get to work. And that was like, Oh, now I have to figure this out. Like, what do I do? Like, yeah. this is my first corporate gig. I'm like, I sort of made up some of this stuff, like, you know, so, and then, and then I went back to, you know, the good old, good old saying, everything is figure outable. And I, decided that everything was figure outable and I was going to find a way to figure it out. Love it. All right, Michael, thank you so much for this time. How yeah. can people learn more about you, get your book? Yeah. So the best way to find me is michaelobrienshift.com. If they want to learn a little bit more about their own resilience, they can text shift to 72000. So 72,000. Just text the word shift and they can take my resilience quiz and they can get the copy of my book on Amazon, barnesandnoble.com. If they want an autographed copy, they can go to my website and I'll sign one special edition book. And the thing I want to just stress on the book, I know I mentioned it earlier, but all the proceeds go to World Bicycle Relief and they help girls in countries like Malawi and Zimbabwe and Zaire conquer the challenge of distance by giving them mobility. They give them a bicycle so they can stay in school longer. So since I lost my mobility and the book was not about money, just about the message, I wanted to give back to a cause that promoted mobility. So as you read the book, hopefully there's a pearl or two in it that changes the reader's life, but know that when you read the book, you're changing someone's life halfway around this planet. And I totally believe that if you change a life anywhere, you change lives everywhere. So it's a little bit of a feel good read on multiple fronts. It is. And I, it's a good read. Thank you. I really liked it. Um, how about Performance Zone? So Performance Zone, yes. Yeah, so Tuesday nights. So you're on, Kelsey. So Performance Zone, 8 p.m. on in the Facebook group, the Performance Zone, Performance Zone with Dane and Michael. So Dane Gingrich is a coach, a fellow coach of mine, a friend. He's out in Santa Barbara. He's sort of the yin to my yang. And we have this little banter going back and forth. He coaches athletes around mindset and I coach executives around mindset. And we bring in difference makers like yourself and other people. They're doing like awesome things in the world. And we have, you know, a little conversation, just the three of us live on Facebook. And then we post it on YouTube and stuff like that. So if people want to join and be a guest, let me know. If you just want to watch and join the conversation, again, 8 p.m. Eastern every Tuesday night. So a lot of fun. You know, we have certain rules. One rule is when things go wrong, it's always my fault. That's something that Dane and I brokered. So, but he's, he's awesome. And we have a lot of fun going back and forth and we try to keep it real. It's not, there's not a lot of polish or production, whatever happens, happens and try to have a good laugh with it. That's awesome. I had so much fun on there. Cool. You.
Yeah, so it's, you know, we just met each other actually for the first time in person a few months ago. So we had known each other for close to four years without ever really meeting in person. So it was like one of these wonderful connections through networking and social media. And we've been doing this thing ever since, which is really fun. I love it. After meeting in person, do you still like each other? Yeah, we do. But, you know, he's, he was like, you're much taller than I thought. <laughs> I thought you were like going to be like 5'10", and I happen to be taller than he is. Um, but I'm, I'm definitely older than he is. So, he, you know, so we have, we have, yeah, we had a good time. We had a really nice dinner. And I think he paid, so it was even better. Absolutely. So, yeah, it was really cool. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Michael. No problem, Kelsey. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening. If you'd like to continue the conversation, please head over to Facebook and join the group Find Your Awesome with Kelsey Abbott. It's free. And if you want more than that, go to my website, kelseyabbott.com, and there you can sign up for my newsletter and get a series of free guided meditations. And I would really appreciate it if you could head over to the podcast app and leave a review of the Find Your Awesome podcast. Your reviews help other people learn about this podcast. Thank you so much. That's all I've got for you, friends. Go forth and be awesome.